The outhouse door on the Y2K compound was fashioned from a life-sized tomb for a mummy, a plaster of Paris sarcophagus that had been pulled from a local theater company's trash pile. On the mountain, anyone could draw laughter by announcing to those who were sitting by the fire, I'm going out to Egypt. I call it a Y2K compound, and on a brisk weekend in November, a stew would cook all day over the fire. And later that night, we would fry biscuit dough in hot oil. The camp was on top, excuse me, the camp was on top of a mountain in East Tennessee. And it's where our family would go to get away from the crazy noise in the city. And forward thinking, if indeed Y2K brought the end of the world as we knew it, we had our own Egypt. We had the storehouses of what was rightfully ours. It was, in fact, a place that we had developed out of a sense of fear. There was a new king in ancient Egypt. He didn't know Joseph and the children of Israel, but he was quick to recognize the threat of a changing demographic. Those people, the new king says, are a risk. Those people, he continued, will rally. Those people, they will turn against us. There was a new king in Egypt, and to his taskmasters, he'd say, work those people to the bone until the skin of their flesh knows, I, I am the new king of Egypt. And in field and in factory, the Israelites labored. The taskmasters were ruthless. And yet the children of Israel, the 12 tribes who came, each man and his household they came, those households grew and they spread out all over Egypt. And in direct defiance of the king, the midwives saw to it that the people multiplied, boys and girls. The text this morning does not give us the final verse of chapter 1. Listen to verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. So what was fear in the early verses has morphed into rage and anger and a vindictive response. The book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, by the historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, showed up on our front porch this summer. It really was for a poli-sci class at Loyola, but when I peeled back the tape, opened the box, and saw the title, I was pretty convinced it was for me. There's no time like the present to read this, Leadership in Turbulent Times. 
The book reviews the lives of four American presidents, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson. And it explores, it goes into a little bit of depth about each one's presidency, but it also looks for leadership qualities. Our preparation for worship words today came from Jan Richardson, and she asked this question. How will we give ourselves to help make possible the life and the freedom of another? That's a God question. It's a God question that's asked by a contemporary theologian, and yet it's fitting to imagine the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, wrestling with this question as he led the country through the Civil War. How will we give of ourselves to help make possible the life and the freedom of others? As President Lincoln endeavored to heal a gravely wounded and divided nation, he modeled the strength of mutual respect and dignity, particularly with his ability to control his anger. When he was angry, supposedly he would pen what he called a hot letter, and then he'd set it aside to a time when he could deal with it with more perspective. And when Lincoln's papers were recovered, there were many such letters that were penned, but also at the top of these letters were penned these words, never sent, never signed. Maybe, just maybe, Lincoln had drawn from James chapter 1, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Shipra and Pua revered God far more than they feared Pharaoh. And I'm pretty certain that reverence for God in appreciation and gratitude for God's beauty and all things life-giving, for appreciation and gratitude for God's blessings, I'm pretty sure that produces God's righteousness. Do you wonder if the midwives sat by the fire asking one another, how will we give of ourselves to help make possible the life and the freedom of others? Midwives are not afraid to move and serve in the presence of pain. Midwives massage life into the world, easing shoulders out of dark womb spaces and into the light of day. And midwives wipe sweat from mother's brows of pain, and, and they are the first to see the wonder of new life. Midwives are agents of God's good beauty and blessing. And once we have seen God's beauty in life and received such a blessing, we will fight for that blessing. God's beauty and God's blessing. And when you know God's beauty and God's blessing, you will work to repair that beauty anywhere where you see that it has been shattered. So how will we give of ourselves to help make possible the life and the freedom of another? 
So long as our fear is in losing our power, our money, our influence, we are inevitably enslaving ourselves and others. And only by letting go of this and living into God's righteousness, into God's beauty and blessing, are we really, truly providing freedom. As we, as a church, look inward with God, and as we, as a church, move forward, freedom is coming. Alleluia. Amen.